Alrighty. Uh, so we are um, we are continuing our series called God Puts the Lonely in Families. And uh, last week, I talked about hospitality, how dinner parties will save the world. Um, dinner parties or hospitality, uh, I defined as self-donation through invitation. So as a Christian, uh, in Romans 15, 7, it says, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you to the glory of God. And so your welcome of other people and hospitality, the word for hospitality in the New Testament is actually stranger love. So Christian community should be characterized by uniquely being able to welcome people who are different than you and opening up your homes and your lives and your heart, being transparent and vulnerable. Um, all of these things come out of experiencing God's welcome for us. Um, and so when we do this, uh, last week was very, um, in a sense, like uh, triumphant and, you know, like this, this will be so great. Uh, but if you've ever hosted an event at your house or a better, maybe a better example is um, if you have ever been in a house with your family, you realize uh, when things get, when people get closer together, um, it actually leads to more conflict. Are you guys with me? The closer you get to someone, the more you stop playing pretend with each other, where you're like, oh, I don't want to offend that person. So I'm not going to say what I really think about their, you know, spaghetti and meatballs. Like, I hate it. It's disgusting. But I'm not going to tell them because, you know, we're not that close. But then when, you, when you're like actually in the family, I'm sure if you're a parent, many, many a time your kids have been like, they, they tell you when they don't like your food, right? <laughs> they tell you. They tell it to your face. They tell you uncomfortable truths very comfortably. Uh, and the thing is, um, I don't want us to be naive about what it means to be part of the body of Christ. To show hospitality to one another is not easy. Uh, in many ways, it's very difficult to show hospitality to people who are different than you, to people who hurt you. Uh, and so what, I, what we're going to look at today is I'm going to be trying to ask this question, what is the basis on which God shows us welcome and hospitality. In the Romans passage, the word for, for welcome also means acceptance. So basically, it, even if we welcome each other into each other's lives, we are still people who hurt each other, who wrong each other, who sin against each other. How do we accept and welcome one another, um, not by being perfect and not by avoiding and pretending, but by like, reconciling, true reconciliation when there's conflict, um, and true forgiveness when we're wronged by each other. This is the only way that Christian community will actually take place. So Dan talked about how um, without Christ, there is no such thing as Christian community from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And today we're going to be basically seeing how there is this incredible truth and spiritual dynamic that comes from the grace of God um, when you truly understand the grace of God for you and the basis on which he welcomes you, it changes and melts your heart in a way that allows you to welcome other people. So let's go ahead and look how that works. We're going to be looking at um, this Luke 18 passage uh, in some detail. So uh, the way I would put it is 
one of the greatest obstacles to welcoming one another is spiritual pride, self-righteousness, or performance, okay? Uh, when you misunderstand the basis by which you're welcomed into the family of God, uh, it actually has huge ramifications for the type of person you are. And this is why many people see Christians as judgmental, um, as proud, and really off-putting, where you, you kind of feel like they're always looking down on you, you know? They're like, oh, look how great I am. But then you're a, like, you know, you're like so miserable. You have all the wrong values. You have the wrong, wrong political position. You have the wrong theology, whatever it might be. Um, this passage is so incisive. Um, it really strikes to the core of our hearts. Um, I would say this especially applies to people who have grown up in the church and are very used to being around and associating with churched people who generally know how to pretend. Like we know how to put on a good face. Um, but it, it also applies to people outside of the church where people outside of the church are self-righteous about different things, you know? Um, and sometimes you're, you're self-righteous about uh, like, you know, uh, doing good or like, you know, philanthropy or social justice or whatever it might be. And you start to look down on people who don't do those same things. Um, so let's go ahead and look at this parable that Jesus tells. Um, the first thing uh, we're going to look about, look at, we're going to compare and contrast these two characters in Jesus's parable. So we're going to look at the Pharisee and we're going to look at the tax collector. And I want to kind of um, have like the structure of our observations are going to be based on three different words. They have different contrasting words. They have three different positions. They have three different postures. And they have three different prayers. You like that? This one was so easy to do. Three Ps, all like alliterative. It's great. I'm, I'm always like, I didn't even have to try for this one. And it actually kind of makes sense based on the passage, which is great. So let's go ahead and first look at um, the Pharisee and the tax collector, their posture and position. Uh, by looking at this, I think this is a really amazing way to understand um, the doctrine or the truth of the grace of God and being justified by faith rather than works. Um, so first, let's look at the Pharisee, and then let's look at the tax collector, their posture and position. The Pharisee, if you notice, um, these two people go to the temple to pray. And so there would have been like these stairs, and they would walk um, up the temple, and there's like different courtyards in the temple. But basically, it's like, if you imagine, a, um, if you imagine like, uh, what's a good example? I guess you could look at a sanctuary, right? Um, you can, there's like the cross on the wall normally. In this case, there's no cross on the wall. There's uh, Dan's 40th birthday balloons. But basically, like the cross is like the holy place, you know? And we, we as Christians, we don't really believe in this anymore. Like the position of where you are doesn't necessarily matter. But for, for the Jewish people during this time, uh, there would have been one area of the temple that was the holy place. And then inside of that would have been the Holy of Holies. And that would have been like a very kind of um, uh, reverent, uh, you, you would have wanted to be very respectful around that area. And so the Pharisee gets really, really close to the holy place. And that kind of really, uh, it really communicates how he feels about himself and his posture before God, where uh, if you look at the Old Testament law, uh, basically no one 
except for the uh, high priest would have been able to go to the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, and they would have had to make many sacrifices to basically cleanse themselves to prepare to go into the presence of a holy, just uh, God. And so in temple sacrifice during this time, there would have been the Holy of Holies, and then there would have been the holy place. And the, the person, uh, the Pharisee, would have been um, a very religious, moral person who took a lot of pride in his ability to um, follow the, the law. So follow the rules and regulations surrounding ritual purity. And so he would have been, um, so you can kind of see based on his uh, position and posture, what he thinks about himself. He stands by himself. He goes close to the Holy Holies um, where the tax collector and tax collectors would have been, uh, I, I think, I honestly think one of the best comparisons for a tax collector would have been like a mafia boss or something. So he, he would have been looked down on by Jews, or he's kind of like a traitor, a Benedict Arnold. So he uh, buys a tax collection franchise from the Roman government, and then he basically cheats people out of their money. And they would have been associated with like goons or like thugs, where they need these like, you know, rough people, like they're like, you know, they like, they look mean and they have like an eye patch. I don't know. That's what I imagine. They didn't have an eye patch, probably, but they go around and collect money from you. So, like, if you don't pay the taxes, then you know, like, this goon is going to beat you up. Um, so they they have their like henchmen, like a mafia boss, uh, and so they would have been hated by the Jewish people because they're kind of traitors. They would have been corrupt. Uh, they made their livelihood based on cheating people and taking more taxes than they were supposed to collect, and they would often become very very wealthy as a result of doing that. And so these are two diametrically opposed people. Um, in religious communities, the Pharisee is highly esteemed. In religious communities, the tax collector is the lowliest of the low. Um, the Pharisee is close to the Holy of Holies. The tax collector is standing far off. What's really interesting is this tax collector believed in God because they, he went to the temple to worship. And his posture and position shows something about how he sees himself and the basis by which he thinks he can approach God. So the tax collector standing far off, so he would have been far away from people. Another thing about this is if you were a Pharisee, you would not want to even get near to people like tax collectors because their uncleanness and their moral uncleanness could rub off on you. So you could become unclean based on them. And so what's really crazy is um, uh, rabbis and Pharisees they were so strict about this that they wouldn't even go to a prostitute to teach her the law. You get that? They really believe the law is good. It's a way that they can know God and obey God. And they looked down so much on this person and they were so afraid of becoming ritually unclean, they wouldn't even try to help this prostitute or like the corrupt tax collector by telling them the truth about God and revealing that to them. Uh, does this kind of like ring any bells for you? Like, have you known people who are like this? And I mean, again, like, <laughs> as, I've, as I've been preaching through this um, and preparing for this, uh, it's very convicting because I, I think I have many of the same tendencies that we're gonna see in the Pharisee. And I don't know if I do it in like a very overt way. Maybe some of you think I am overtly judgmental, which sure, you know, maybe that's true. But uh, I often find that I have a very critical spirit um, and I can feel superior to people based on what I do. Uh, but that's the wrong attitude, okay? So we have the posture, 
uh, so we have the position of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Let's look at the posture. Uh, the Pharisee is standing. And so he, this, th there's nothing wrong with his, the way he's praying. This would have been very common. But he's just like confident, you know? You can kind of imagine him. He would just speak and he would be like, you know, I hope you could kind of even see that in, the, in my tone as I was reading the text. Um, he's very confident in himself. And he, he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like those people over there, you know, those like people of a different political affiliation or like those people who are sinners or whatever it might be. I'm so glad I'm not like them. Uh, and he's so confident in the presence of God based on what he says, I tithe twice a week, I give a 10, or sorry, I fast twice a week, I give a tithe of any, everything I have. But then the tax collector, when he's praying, he's standing far off from the Holy of Holies, and he, he would not lift his eyes to the heaven, but he beat his breast. And this would have been, this would have been extraordinarily extreme. Like, no one would have done this. This was very, very rare for someone to beat their breast and it would have been an expression of extreme sorrow and kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm so remorseful for my sin and who I am. And I'm unworthy to get close to God. And so I stay far back. Um, but we're going to look more about what he says and what that means about the basis by which he believes he can approach God. Okay? So we have the posture and position of the tax collector. Let's look at the prayer. Okay? Let's first look at the Pharisee's prayer and what this reveals about his heart. So let me read again. Uh, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Um, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Um, so what is the kind of core or what is the attitude or heart of his prayer here? Um, he says basically this, God, I thank you that I am so great. I thank you, God, that I'm so much better than those other people, you know? And I, you can kind of imagine this. He's like the type of person who's like, I'm disciplined, you know? I'm committed. All these other people, like, they don't work hard enough. You got to work harder. You got to keep the law. You got to do all the Christian stuff, right? Um, and then you just really get the sense that he's always looking down on people who aren't able to meet his standards, the third thing he does is he says, look at my commitment and moral excellence. And that's a way that he not only believes he can come to God, but it's a way that he gets a sense of worth and superiority over and against other people. And so if you look at what he says he does, he says he fasts twice a week. And if you look at the law, uh, you are only commanded to fast one time a year uh, before the Day of Atonement. Okay, so fasting is when you basically don't eat food for a long period of time. Uh, and you might like, you know, you might like, basically, it, it's kind of like you're identifying with the plight of the poor. Um, and you're identifying with their kind of sorrow and their hunger, right. And then also can have kind of a spiritual significance, where you're saying like, by creating this deficit of food, I experience this hunger and thirst for God. Um, and so some people would use it in that sort of religious sense. But this guy says, I fast twice a week. And so this guy is like way, way, way extra, as the young kids would say, right? He's way extra. He's way too intense. Like the, the equivalent of this is like, we, um, we have prayer meeting once a week on Sunday morning. 
But this guy's like, I'm going to have prayer meeting four times a day, every two hours, beginning at midnight and going all the way until 8, 8 a.m. And that shows how dedicated I am. And none of you guys have been showing up to prayer meeting. What's up for, with that, huh? Why are you so much worse than me and less committed than me? What else does he say? He says, I give tithes of all that I get. So a tithe is like, you know, in the, in the Old Testament, like a tithe, tithes were actually more than 10%. They would have collected a number of, um, I mean, some people say it's like 20 or 30% of their money would have gone towards um, like the religious, uh, the religious order, like the Levites and the priests for a temple upkeep, for sacrifices, for different things. And so they would have given a lot of their money, um, but you were not required to give tithes out of everything. Uh, you only needed to give a certain amount, but he's basically saying like, I keep the law to the letter and I am meticulous about doing this. So if he bought like, so let's pretend that you're going to Safeway and you buy like hamburger, right? You buy like ground, you, ground beef, right? And this ground beef, you, you buy like two pounds. He would basically be like, I'm, I, I'm supposed to give God a part of everything I get. So I'm going to give God one-tenth of my hamburger patty, and I'm going to throw it on the fire, the altar. But not only that, when he gets like the salt and pepper to season his hamburger patty, he has to take one-tenth of the salt out of the salt shaker and like put it in the fire, and then one-tenth of the pepper. And then how do you guys season your burgers? Like cumin, paprika, what, what fancy seasoning do you use? He would have taken out a tenth of all of that. And this was out of his zealousness and desire to keep the law. And not only that, he would go further than what the law required. Um, the other thing I want you to know is part of the reason he did this, which you can tell, is because he, want, he was taking pride in being better than people. Um, he wanted to have like, he wanted to have a position of superiority over people. Um, now, you, you might be saying like, this is ridiculous. I never do stuff like that. But I actually want you to consider what are the ways that you build up your identity by looking down on people, okay? So uh, if you think about this for a second, you might do really ridiculous things because I know that I did. So um, when I was in Bible school, uh, so I, uh, I failed physics in high school and then I was gonna go to community college but I took a year off to go to a Bible school and then I applied to like other colleges and surprisingly I got in. But um, when I was in Bible school, I felt very insecure about how smart I was because I didn't do well in school. And so I super duper overcompensated. And I looked at all of these Christians here who like, you know, they were from all over the United States. Some of them were farmers. Some of them were from the Midwest or like middle of nowhere, like Texas, different places. And I wanted to be the smart intellectual one. So I had this book that I bought um, called Jean-Paul Sartre, Being in Nothingness which is like an 800 page book on philosophy that's totally unintelligible. And I would just carry it around to class so people would see that I was intellectual and I was like reading cool stuff, right? But the thing is like, I had no clue. I didn't even bother reading it. I, I probably read like 30 pages and I couldn't tell you a single thing I read from that book. But I knew that it was a fashionable smart person book. And so I wanted to appear that way. Was I smarter than the other people around me? Probably not, but I wanted to appear that way. Um, have, you, have you guys ever done that? Like, have you constructed your identity based on what you think you can do better than other people? 
And then there's a really interesting thing that happens when you run into someone who's actually much better at you than the thing you construct your identity on, you figure out a different way to tear them down and elevate yourself. So when I went to college, um, I went to a small liberal arts school. And like when you go to college, you realize you might be smart, you might think you're smart, but there are so many smarter people than you. There are so many smarter than people than you. So you, you hear stories about kids who like, you know, valedictorian, top of their class, perfect ACT, SET, AP tests. They go to, they go to like a, an Ivy League school or like a, UC, a really good UC. Um, and they're used to being the smartest kid in class. And then they realize they have to scratch and claw to be average. And that is incredibly humbling. So what strategy do you use to tear other people down? You compare a different element of your life. So what I would do is I would be like, okay, you know, this person, they're smarter than me. I concede that fact, but I'm better at sports. Or if they're better at sports than me and they're smarter than me, you'd be like, oh, I'm better at music. But then there's that person who's better than you at school and at sports and at music. And then you're just like, what do I do? I'm just not as good. And it's humbling, you know? But, but you see what I'm saying. Like we try to construct our self-worth by putting other people down um, and finding the game that we can best play at. You know what I mean? I, I, if, you, if you're in school, you know exactly what I mean, because we all do it. So you, some of you might be like, you know, I'm not as smart as that person, but I'm prettier, you know? Or like, she doesn't, she dresses so ugly. You know, like that, stuff like that. This is what happens. This is the heart of the Pharisee, right? And he's playing the moral religious performance game. And that's the way that he thinks himself superior to other people. Let's look at the prayer of the tax collector. Uh, he says, so he's beating his breast. He's standing far off. He doesn't even look towards God. And when you don't look towards someone, you're basically saying like, I can't even look you in the eye because I feel so ashamed or remorseful about the wrong that I've done to you. So when, if, you, if you do something really bad to someone and you realize later that you did it wrong, um, like when I've like hurt people based on things I say, um, I feel really, really bad. And when I go before them, it's like really hard to just like look them in the eyes and say like, I'm sorry, because you feel so ashamed and you feel so bad about hurting, having hurt someone. And so you look down on the ground um, and then he's beating his breast and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you were a person who were looking at these two different people on the temple, in the temple, um, you would have seen the Pharisee as a person who was righteous and acceptable to God. And you would have seen this tax collector as someone who was abhorrent to God. And he was a sinner. And he admitted he was a sinner. And everyone knew he was a sinner because he would go around sinning. That was like his profession, his livelihood. Um, but the crazy thing about this parable is Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the sinner, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. And so by saying this, Jesus would have turned their whole understanding of the religious system on its head, where this would be like the pastors at a Christian church, um, if they are prideful and take, uh, take basically think they are acceptable for, before God based on the good they do, and it could be like philanthropy, helping the poor, preaching good sermons, teaching, playing music. If they think they're righteous before God based on that, then they are not justified. But someone who does none of those things and simply comes before God and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, 
in God's eyes, they are acceptable. They are welcomed with open arms into his house, into his family. And the word for justified basically means in a courtroom, this person would have been acceptable and righteous. So they, they might have been a criminal um, or they might have been accused of a crime, but the judge pronounces that they are righteous, they are justified, and therefore they are free to go. That's kind of the, what the word means. But let's keep on looking at the prayer of the tax collector. And let's, let's see for a second what, uh, how we can understand uh, grace and then what kind of our understanding of grace, uh, how that, the implications of that and how, oh, okay, I'm, I'm not making sense. Uh, your understanding of grace will come out in the way you treat other people and the way you treat other people reveals your understanding of grace. So if you understand the basis by which God welcomes us, uh, that will actually change your pride and superiority. Um, it will make you an open and gracious person. And so I want to ask a few questions uh, that, can kind of, um, that can kind of test us. So, and I, I want to ask these questions to myself. Uh, the first question is, are you self-focused instead of God-focused in prayer and then you could also talk about like Bible reading or singing or preaching, um, whatever it might be, whatever religious performance you do. It might be like helping poor people. It might be helping, and it might even be like being hospitable with your house. Uh, are you self-focused? Are you focused on other people? Are you focused on God? When you look at the tax collector, or sorry, the Pharisee's prayer, um, he says, I, five times. He says, I thank you, God that I am so great, and I'm not like those other people. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything. Five times he says, I. He says, you know, it's kind of like he's just rushing through the God part because he knows he's supposed to. He's like, God, blah, 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 blah. But I, you know, I'm so great. Um, when you pray, are your prayers more like his prayer, or are they more like the tax collectors, where you constantly are rehearsing um, how amazing you are? or your good deeds, or your good preaching, or whatever, is your self-image and performance all based upon what you do? This is a sure sign that you misunderstand the basis by which you are accepted and welcomed by God. Next question. Do you often compare yourselves to others to tear down them and prop up your self-esteem? So he's comparative. He, this is the type of person who whenever, like, you know, Many, many a time preachers have said this, but the same is true. This is a powerful mechanism within the human heart of self-justification. So this is a really powerful mechanism where like you're, you're driving your car, right? And when the other person does something really dumb in their car and put you in danger, you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're such a terrible driver. But when you are really tired, you know, like it's late at night, I had a really long day, I'm driving home, and then I cut off that person, they almost run into me. It's like, oh, but it's okay, I'm a good driver, but you know, I'm so tired. And so you make excuses for yourself because you want to maintain this image that you are a good driver, but then you're always critical of other people. And in sermons, or when you read the Bible, your impulse might be, and my impulse might be, to look at the other people and say, this sermon would really apply to that person but it never applies to me. And this actually short circuits any ability for scripture or preaching or prayer to reach you. Because to change in the Christian life, you have to be willing to let go of your 
self-justification defense mechanism and say, God, I'm going to let you speak to me about me, about my issues. I'm not going to let the issues the other person has be bigger in my sight than my own issues. And then you bring them before God and he can actually do something with them. And that's why Jesus says, um, uh, take the log out of your eye before you try to take the speck out of your brother's where it's a really funny image. Like you have a giant like tree trunk right in front of your face. And yet you're looking at that tiny little piece of wood and saying like, oh my gosh, you know, you're so bad. But you don't realize your problems are way bigger. But then Jesus says, first take the plank, the, the log, the log out of your eye, and then you can actually help the other person. And the, the word for this is self-awareness or humility. Like where to be self-aware and have a true understanding of yourself means you can say, these are my issues. These are my weaknesses. These are my sins that I struggle with. Um, and so I think the one that I've really been convicted about is um, the way I speak about other people and kind of my heart attitude towards other people, where it's like, I, I talk to Dan and he doesn't call me out for this. I wish he would call me out for this. But sometimes I just, I'm in a bad mood or I'm tired or I just want to feel good about myself. And I look down on other people and I communicate that um, to him. I complain about them. I'm resentful to people. This is a real struggle for me. And I really believe that the grace of God has changed me in many ways. And I do believe that I'm a more gracious, loving person than before. But at the same time, I still have this struggle where I talk, like I talk a lot. Um, and, you know, the book of James talks about how like no man can control the tongue. And so the same thing that God uses to bless people is also something that I can have a tendency to curse people with and hurt people with. This is one of my besetting sins. And so I need to like apologize to people for the way that I, I talk about people. And I, sometimes I'm sneaky about it. You know, I don't say this to people's faces. I can say it behind their backs and they don't know. It's, it's just real. And like, again, um, I, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry for the ways that I've done this. Um, but I also want to change, and I, but I'm able to look at myself. So I, rather than comparing myself to others to tear, tear them down and prop myself up, um, rather than being critical of other people and gracious to yourself, this sinner, this tax collector, understands the basis by which you can come before God, come before the Holy of Holies. So let's look at what he does. The basis we come before God is not based on, I fast twice a week and avoid these heinous sins, but God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Uh, you might miss the meaning of the word or the phrase be merciful uh, because this is actually like a very specific kind of concept and, and word uh, where it basically means God uh, apply propitiation to me. And another word for that would be apply atone the atonement to me. Where if you were a Jewish person, you would have been very comfortable with the idea that in order to come before a holy God, you have to present a sacrifice. And by the substitutionary sacrifice of that offering, that is the basis by which you can come into the presence of God. And that offering would have covered your sin. It would have covered your critical nature and the way you hurt other people and, and the way that you reject and rebel against God. That's what the atonement or the propitiation, the sacrifice would have done. And so when he says, God, be merciful, he's saying, God, apply the atonement to me, a sinner. The Pharisee identifies himself 
based on tearing down other people and thinking he's superior to other people. The tax collector says, God, the only basis I can come before you is an atoning sacrifice. And he, the only thing he identifies himself as having is sin. And he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Um, there is a guy, Philip Melanchthon, I think, I think he was around the time of Martin Luther, um, but he has this like saying where he says something on the lines of, the only thing that you offer um, to your salvation is your sin. That's the only thing you offer. God's salvation is free. It is a gift. And the only thing you contribute is your sinfulness. But the amazing thing is when the tax collector says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, apply the atonement to me. He goes home justified. He goes home righteous, not on the basis of anything he did. He has nothing to boast in. And this is so incredible. Now, who's the bullseye of this parable? Like, who's the person that Jesus is trying to get? If you look at the first verse in verse 9, it says, people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. If you think that your righteousness comes from how you perform morally, you are trusting that it is in something you did to be righteous before God. Um, there's a really interesting uh, survey I read. Uh, it, if, you guys, if you guys were to guess, this was a survey done by rich people on their attitude towards social welfare programs or poor people. So if you were to guess, would you think that a person who inherited their money would be more gracious and compassionate to poor people or a person who was self-made, like a self-made millionaire? What do you think? We all have this kind of conception of those like entitled, spoiled, trust fund babies, right? And they're totally out of touch. They don't know the plight of the poor. Or during the pandemic, there were all those like celebrity videos. I don't know if you guys remember that. But anyway, um, what, this, what the survey showed was the people who were self-made were far more judgmental of poor people than the people who inherited their money. Do you know why? Because the rich people who inherited their money had done nothing to earn it. And they realized that their entire position and standing was based on the grace and their fortune of someone else, the luck of being born into their family and their parents giving them this money. But the self-made people, they were like, I came out of poverty. Why don't you do it too? They based their, um, they judged people on the, and, and they actually were very contemptuous of poor people because they would see it as a moral thing where like, look how hardworking I am. Look how great I am. I, didn't, I, I wasn't given a, a penny to my name, but I made it. I made myself a millionaire through my hard work, my stocks, like whatever it might be. And that's, that's what's going on here. People who trust in themselves that they're righteous look on other people with contempt. And that word for contempt is such a powerful word. It shows up when Herod and the soldiers are mocking Jesus on the cross and going to the cross, where you treat people as if they're nothing. You treat people with disdain. You look down on them. You feel so superior to them. And this leads to a radically insecure identity and kind of self-worth, self-esteem. When you do good, you look down on people. And then here's the flip side. Um, if you judge your acceptance before God based on how well you perform, when you perform badly, you are crushed by shame and guilt. You don't want to show your face in church because of what you did on Saturday night. That is misunderstanding the grace of God and the gospel, where it is not based on how well you perform 
and it's not based on how you avoid bad stuff. If you're bad, if you're a sinner, that's no different than me. That's no different than any of us. The only basis we can come before God is on the basis of this um, propitiation. Apply the propitiation, apply the atoning sacrifice to me. And so uh, there's a really amazing passage where it says in 1 Peter 2, 24, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we, are, we have been healed. That's a, an amazing verse where the basis by which we are healed, the basis by which we die to sin and live to righteousness is nothing that we've done. Um, so let me, give, let me give another illustration. Uh, this is kind of what it is like to understand the grace of God. Um, I, I think I've used this one before, but I think it's actually a really good um, illustration. Uh, group projects in school, okay? So if you've ever been part of a group project, you all want to go towards that one super hardworking smart kid. And maybe some of you are that super hardworking smart kid. I am not. I'm the kid who like plays video games rather than does the group project. And I also hate working with other people. So I'm not a good person to do group projects with. And like, honestly, for church stuff, that becomes an issue too. <laughs> I'm not a good team player. Um, but if you were part of a group project and this was a really big project, and you knew that based on the grade you got in this group project, it could mean the difference between getting into the school of your dreams and not getting into the school of your dreams. Uh, but for some reason, you decide not to do it at all. And so you come into class the next day expecting to fail. And one of your friends comes up to you and is like, what were you doing? You know, I worked all night to do this group project. You didn't do anything. You didn't help at all. What happened? And you're like, I was busy playing Minecraft, or I was bu busy playing Genshin Impact, right? No, like, whatever it might be. I was busy. I was busy. I was having fun, you know, whatever. And what, what's so amazing is, like, boasting in our salvation, what Jesus did, and looking down on people would be like going up, like, this, this kid that you, they give you an A+. Plus. The teacher gives you an A+, plus, and your whole group gets that grade, even though you contributed zero. And then it would be like going up to another person who got like a 95 or someone who got a worse grade. And you're like, haha, you know, I'm so good. You know, I did so much to get an A plus and like, you're so bad at school. I'm so good. It doesn't make any sense, right? You're boasting in something you didn't do. And that doesn't make any sense. If we are boasting in what we do that comes out of being a new creation and regenerated by God, the grace of God enables us to live a life that's different and live a life that's good. Why are we boasting in being better than other people? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. We, we benefited from what Jesus did all by himself. Nothing we contributed except for our sin. And as a result of that, we can't be superior. The other implication is that means grace is amazing. Do you know how good you would feel if you completely, you had, you had accepted that you might not get into that college anymore and you were broken up about it. For some reason, you still didn't do it, even though you, know that would, you knew that would happen. And do you know how happy you would be, how, how excited you would be when you realize I still got that good grade and maybe I still can go to that college. That's, what, that's the difference between someone who trusts in themselves that they're righteous and someone who understands the beauty of grace. I get excited about how God has welcomed me because I know that I am, I am totally helpless apart from the grace of God. I'm totally helpless. I'm totally self-centered and unable to love even my family apart from the grace of God. And yet because of his grace, 
um, before I did anything to deserve it, Jesus Christ and God, they saw me in my sin and said, I want to save you and rescue you and bring you into my family. That's what it means to be welcomed on the basis of grace. Now, do you see how this changes the way we welcome each other? When Romans 15, 7 says, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you to the glory of God, it means the reason we want to show this love and graciousness and openness towards people, even people who hurt us, even people who wrong us, even people who are very different than us, people who annoy us, we welcome them and we are in a sense told to welcome them on the basis of the welcome we have received from God. The, the grace that God treated us with that welcomes us into the family is also the grace by with which that person who sinned against you is welcomed into the family. And have you ever thought about it this way? That same person you find to be annoying and you don't want to welcome into your home, that same person, Christ accepts them on the basis of his free gift of salvation and grace. And so if they simply receive his gift, they are a Christian, they are forgiven, they are set free, they are justified by faith. Who are you to judge them and condemn them when God doesn't judge them and condemn them? When Romans 8 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that doesn't just apply to me personally. It means God does not condemn any one of you who has made Jesus your Lord and Savior. And so how can I look down on you? How can I feel superior? How can I be critical? And yet I do. Sometimes I still do. But that's because I forget the reason, the basis by which I'm accepted by God. When we become this type of community who understands the grace of God, who's experienced it, our lives and our hospitality become about giving God glory. Where Jesus gave glory to God by welcoming people at great cost to himself. And we want to imitate God. We want to imitate Christ and our Father by doing the same thing. Where I want to be someone who can welcome and love really hard people to love. I want to be someone, and I'm not there yet by any means, but people who uh, frustrate me, if I see them the way God sees them, as someone who is worthy of sending his son to die for them, doesn't that change the way I see them and feel about them? Doesn't that change the way I act towards them? It should. And by God's power and grace, he enables us to do that and live out his love to people around us. And when we do this, like, again, this is where it gets a little bit tough because uh, we can see this standard and we can look at our church and be like, are we doing this? To what degree are we doing this? We can feel bad about ourselves. We can feel guilty or ashamed. That's not the idea. The idea is this is an incredible opportunity for us to be conduits of God's love to lonely people around us, to hurting people, to sinful people who desperately need the grace of God and to be rescued. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to seek and save sinners, not people who trust in themselves for their own righteousness. Um, do you know the grace of God? Do you understand how that applies to you and that changes your own self-image? Where regardless of how I live today, I am so loved and accepted by God, and he is committed to sticking with me through my mess. I still continue to have mess in my life, but he says, I am never going to give up on you because I accept you on the basis of grace. And then do you accept one another? Do I accept you? Do, I, do we accept one another on the same basis where we can actually, if we're not afraid of um, 
like being looked down on by other people or offending people. We can tell the truth to people they need to hear, but do it in a way that's compassionate and loving and gentle. So here, here's, here's an, an application. Um, if you ever, if you're the type of person who likes to tell hard truths to people, just make sure that you are doing it in a way that's gentle. And then also you're committed to walking with them as they're working on that problem. You guys get me? So they might not be able to see an issue that they have. Like I have issues that I can't see, but then Dan or like Jeremiah or different people, they're able to talk to me and say, Daniel, here's an issue I'm, I've seen in your life, but you're not like, I'm so much better than you. Like I never like am critical of other people. Um, well, self, self-defeating, but I'm never critical of other people. Uh, instead, you can say, look, I've, I've noticed this is an issue that makes you intimidating or it, it kind of ruins relationships with people or makes you unapproachable. Um, I really think you should work on this, or I think you should like ask God for help to change. And know this, even if you act this way, I'm with you. This takes a long time. It takes a long time to change. Let's be patient with one another and welcome and forgive one another over the long haul because Christ welcomed us on the basis of salvation, justification by faith. And he's willing to walk with us through the long, on the long haul. This is how Christ welcomes us. This is why grace is so amazing. And this changes us into people who should be characterized by humble, by humility, by welcoming, um, by openness and transparency and love and openness about your vulnerabilities. Um, rather than performing church, we can say, I'm really struggling right now with sin. I'm really struggling with God. Can you pray, with, can you pray for me? And that actually builds community in ways that religious performance doesn't. This is what we need to understand, the grace of God. This opens up everything, the Christian life. This opens up community um, to see each other's needs as our own, to show love to each other, to forgive each other. Do you understand how God has welcomed and loved and forgiven you? He did that by sending Jesus Christ to the cross to die for you. And so we can see our identity as this, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I am a sinner in need of grace, but God, apply your atonement to me so that I can come before you unashamed, completely free, righteous before the holy judge on the basis of what Christ did. Do you know this grace? Are you living this out? Is it transforming the way you treat one another and see one another? Um, I pray that it will. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, I thank you for your welcome towards us. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, melt our hearts with your grace, that we would be so excited about um, hearing about you, your goodness, your love, your sacrifice on the cross, and that this would help us and empower us and enable us because of your life to both live out your love, to welcome people, to be hospitable, to be gracious, to tell the truth in ways that people need to hear. Um, I pray you would transform our hearts and our community that we would give you glory. And I pray, Lord, that in the ways that we've been avoiding this, avoiding loving each other, that you would really give us grace and um, help us encourage each other um, so that you would be glorified in our lives, through our community, through the love we have for one another. We love you so much and thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.